You're listening to the Real Estate Runway Podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. Friends, I am so excited to introduce a friend of mine, a co-investor, someone I've bought properties from. His name is Peter Pratty. It's a fantastic interview where he's going to go into how he kind of got his start in wholesaling when he was going to school to be a nurse anesthetist and you know, transitioned from that into buying multifamily all before he was 25. He's since sold off all these properties. He has bought into several mobile home parks and has you know, I think 170 pads under contract right now. And he's just really a visionary on, you know, looking towards longer term assets and, and identifying value plays and finding deals. So I cannot wait for you to learn from him. Here we go. Good afternoon for another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton, and I'm joined with a good friend and business colleague, Mr. Peter Pratty. Peter is a real estate investor who received his start purchasing multifamily apartment buildings using investor equity primarily. He has since sold these apartments and transitioned into mobile home communities with 173 lots owned and another two parks under contract. That's a total of about 400 lots after the current properties are purchased. He is also a full-time commercial broker specializing in development land and multifamily brokerage. I think it's easier to ask what this guy doesn't do. Without further ado, Peter, it's great to have you here. How are you doing, man? Doing all right. Just trying to adjust to the continually changing environment that we're in right now. I think the uh, strong are proving themselves as we speak. So, You know, it wouldn't be any fun if it wasn't changing, would it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I know you guys are moving and shaking too. So it's everybody's trying to, uh, to get their deals done and, and do them well. And it's tough right now, but we're doing it. That's right. That's right. We've even done a few together through this time. So it's, it's, yeah. uh, there's a lot of waiting to be had, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool, man. Well, I know you're a busy guy. Let's get right into it. You know, I'd love to start off with just a little bit of your story, man. Just tell us how you got to where you are, you know, any high points you think would be important for the audience. And then I'd love to dive into some particulars. Well, yeah, it's funny. I started out in school. I was going to be a nurse anesthetist. So I actually started off in the medical field. So those two things, real estate and medicine are pretty diametrically different. So whenever people ask me what I went to school for, it's I always kind of get a kick out of that because they're generally pretty shocked. So I went to school and, and for that and kind of discovered real estate in the middle of all that. And, you know, I was taking these hard classes. I was trying to do well with everything. It was pretty hard to uh, do both at the same time, but I kind of got through it, finished a little early, mercifully, because if I would have finished on time and went a little longer, it would have been a big problem for me. I was way too busy. So I got out of there about six months early with with the degree. I didn't change my major or anything, but finished that up. And then I started, uh, initially I was in single family wholesaling. So started wholesaling some single family homes. And that was a big source of uh, of everyday income for me at the time. Kind of allowed me to build up a little bit of credibility heading towards the multifamily realm. And then at a certain point within wholesaling, we started looking at uh, some multifamily apartment buildings. And so we always knew myself and, and, and another partner or two at the time, we always knew we wanted to get into the multifamily business and buy and hold assets, but things just kind of fluidly changed. And, you know, 
still pretty young now and was even younger and more inexperienced at the time. So we just kind of went with the flow. And, and so I just kept plugging along and, and trying to get into, into those multifamily buildings and eventually took down three or four buildings. So we did a six unit, a seven unit, a 35 unit and a 20 unit. And there were some other small ones mixed in there that we were kind of more met for a short-term flip. But those ones I just mentioned were all kind of, we had a a long-term vision in mind for all those. So bought those properties using my own and investors' equity. And then at a certain point, we decided to sell and kind of divest the holdings within that company and kind of go in a little bit different directions. And that's when we met Chad here and Chad bought everything we owned and, and pillaged the whole portfolio. So <laughs> I did just a little bit. <laughs> Happy to do it. So, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we sold and, and then I started looking into mobile home communities. I knew a guy that I had been laughing at for a little while for investing in mobile home communities. It took me about a year to get around to the idea because I had a little bit of funds that I needed to use from the sales of the multifamily and all the other things I had done. Found a couple of properties. And ever since then, I've been investing in, in mobile home communities. And at the same time, I work with a kind of a family office in Knoxville, a small firm, developers and, and brokers uh, in Knoxville there. So specialize in land and multifamily sales and, and things like that, do a little bit of leasing too. So kind of pulled in multiple directions every single day. Man, you were just a jack of all trades, man. Yeah. That's that's a lot of stuff to do at one time. How, how do you keep it all going? I mean, that any one of those could be a full-time job in itself. Yeah. You know, someone just made that exact same comment to me the other day. The, the key is I never want to be a master of none because that's the jack of all trades and master of none is useless, right? So I think that's one of the- You see how I teed that one up nicely for you? I lobbed that softball in the air for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, it's perfect how you did that. So no, it's, it's very challenging. The biggest thing for me, and this is going to sound really silly, honestly, but, but with all the technology and every all the phones and the computers and everything we have, what I like to do is every single day, I take a piece of paper an actual piece of paper made from a tree and and a pen made from ink, right? And so I actually write everything I have to do down on that. Instead of having a calendar on the phone and everything and reminders, those things have their place for certain tasks. But I like to have that piece of paper every single day that has a different task list on it that I write things down, that I cross them off when I'm finished with that task and I can add things to it. And it's always sitting right next to the computer or with me when I'm in the car. So that helps a lot. I, it sounds kind of simple, but it does. No, it makes sense, man. It's like it's like your your tablet that is, you know, set it's set in stone off to the side. No matter what noise yeah. is in front of you on the computer, on the phone, whatever else, like this is what you got to get done. And man, it's gratifying to have a list that's all crossed off at the end of the oh, day. Isn't it? As long as they're high profile things. And you know as well as I do that you can plan out your, you know, things in your head and put them off to the side, you may get two things done out of 10 for that day. And then things overtake your schedule and your whole day changes into something you never thought it would be. That's right. So you have to have that off to the side and, and look at it every, all the time. That's right. And you know, something something our business coach always tells us is you got, you got to go with the flow. Sometimes you're ebbing, sometimes you're flowing. And, you know, you you really try to focus on hoping that those two things you cross off the list are at least, you know, high green, high dollar value tasks, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes you got to handle the fires, you know, so yeah, that's life. 
<laughs> Absolutely. You got to move things to the next day sometimes, just as what it is. That's right. Well, hey, pivoting over a little bit. So, you know, a lot of our listeners are very astute in the multifamily space, but, you know, you're one of my few, you know, friends and colleagues who play in the mobile home space. You know, my, my partner Maurice is one as well. What did you see in mobile home communities that that kind of attracted you away from what you already knew in multifamily and how are they different? It would be easier to start out with a few seconds of what I saw that I didn't like when I was laughing at the individual that I'm now partners with in the mobile home space. <laughs> what I didn't like was what everybody sees. They see you know, a low-income community. It's not visually appealing. It's not the kind of like sexy investment that everybody thinks of multifamily to be. You think it's going to be low collection rates. I don't blame people for thinking that because I thought that for a long time. But now moving into what the reality is, what it is, is the tenants own their own mobile homes. And even though the homes are commonly referred to as mobile homes, they're not actually mobile. And as a matter of fact, the technical term for that sort of home is, is a manufactured home, not a mobile home, because mobile implies that you can move it around. Technically, you can. But the average cost in my area to move and set up a, a mobile home is about six dollars to $8,000 to dismantle it, to transport it, to set it back up, to put porches on and everything. So it's a semi-permanent structure. And in most cases, that's more than the value of the home itself, right? To move it. Absolutely. I mean, especially the older homes may not be worth as much. Now, lately, there's been a shortage to where they've been worth a little more, but still the, the average home age, 80s, 90s, maybe early 2000s. And it's just not financially feasible to be moving that sort of thing anymore. So it's like if I have a car and it's worth $5,000 and the transmission goes out, I have to have a long and hard you know, conversation with myself to see, is it really going to be worth it to put two or 3,000 into this thing? It's worth $6,000, $5,000, whatever it is. But moving on from that, the tenants actually own those structures and you own the infrastructure and the land underneath those homes, which is called the pads, right? So in multifamily, we say 100 units. In mobile home parks, we say 100 pads. Now, some parks have park-owned homes where the park owns a bunch of the homes, but most of the, what I like to do, the tenants own their own homes. And you could probably see what the benefits are to that because the tenant is more likely to have a personal investment in where they're living. And so they just pay a lot rent for the infrastructure and whatnot. And it works out to be a little bit better than, or a lot better than what you'd think because they pay on time. It's a smaller amount of money. If they don't pay, you know, they have to leave the premises and, and you in the park takes possession of the home. So it's a lot better than what people think. And that there's a lot of aspects to it, but that's a short over uh, overrun. It's very interesting. So, you know, coming from the multifamily space, right? And I think a lot of people are pretty in tune with what the plan is when you go in and buy a multifamily property these days, right? You you go in, you're ideally finding something that is maybe performing less than optimally, or at least has some meat on the bone. Maybe it's performing just fine, but it's ready for recapitalization. Someone comes in, spends a little money, you know, slaps granite down, whatever the play is, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden you magically get this 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 higher rent. We all know that if someone doesn't pay, you can evict and, and pull someone out. At least you used to be able to, right? One day that'll come back. And uh, <laughs> so, so how is the like how is the business plan different? Like, talk to us a little bit about how one aims to purchase a property and make money in multi in uh, mobile home parks. In mobile home parks, you know, it is a little bit different because you don't have that building, right? So you know, it's different. You have roads, you have infrastructure, you have 
signage, you have different things. It's not the same as a as an apartment complex by any means in, in that regard. When you're buying a mobile home community, most of the, of the owners, and now it's being consolidated quite a bit, but a lot of the owners are what we refer to as mom and pop owners. They're you know, maybe looking to retire and they're looking to kind of enjoy the rest of their, you know, retirement and, and and reap the fruits of their labor. So, yeah, you know, a lot of it is is that they just haven't raised rent in a while, and the lot rents are under market. You know, you may have a market where the lot rents are three hundred, and they're renting for one hundred and eighty or two hundred a month. Well, if you kind of extrapolate that over eighty units or eighty pads, and you raise a hundred bucks a month, that can make a major difference. Now. Most of the time, they need work, road work. There's bad signage. The community is not having an enforcement of rules. There's trash maybe that's being left out. There's things that need to be repaired around the community. It don't make it look as good. They're not having community events. They're having water leaks all the time. I mean, there's many things that you can do to improve that community that you can justify that that rent raise because there is a market lot rent just like there is a market rent for apartments. And so that's kind of the gist of it. Just depends on the property, but most of them are along those lines. That makes sense. Are there any kind of showstoppers for you? So I know some people don't like park-owned homes, and I, I can see the case for why one would want them and why one would not. You know, some people only buy parks with that are on city utilities, so they don't have to maintain the pipes. I mean, are, are there? You know, what what style of investor are you? And are, are there any kind of no-nos for you when you're looking at a park? Well, yeah, you have to be a little bit more flexible. I mean, there's not as much product out there as far as the asset class is concerned. I don't know the exact numbers. I'd love for someone to tell me what the exact numbers are. But with apartment complexes, I'd be willing to venture that if there's 100,000 apartment complexes in the United States, there may be 10,000 mobile home parks. I mean, I don't I don't know. Those are random numbers. but And shrinking, by the way, shrinking every yeah, day. <laughs> and shrinking at 1% a year from what I hear. So I would willing to, you know be willing to bet that maybe there's ten complexes for every one park or more wow. or more ratio. So yes, you have to be a little bit more flexible in what you do. As far as what you don't want, you don't want wastewater treatment plants. You don't want lagoons for your sewage. Mm. I mean, Ooh. you know, people do these things, but the cap rates increase. People are paying less of a valuation. They're not as desirable. So what I look for is city utilities, city water, city sewer, and, and on the water side, you know, you could see something with well, well water where there's been a well that's drilled. Yeah. It's just not as desirable. It's just not as straightforward. Septic is something I will do. I do own a property on septic, but that's a little bit more straightforward. You know, there's plenty of people and companies that take care of septic tanks. Not exactly a lot of companies that deal with wastewater treatment plants. And your your options, if one of those fails, are not that pleasant, believe me. <laughs> so those are a couple of the pitfalls. And, and as far as park-owned homes, some people deal with park-owned homes. I prefer tenant-owned homes. If you're in a really strong market, you can convert to tenant-owned homes. Because remember, what you're trying to have is you're trying to hit the angle of the tenant taking pride in owning their own home mm. and paying you almost a quasi land lease to have that home on your land. When the tenant is renting a home, they don't put as much care and effort into maintaining that place and they don't stay there as long. That makes sense. We have tenants at our properties that have stayed there for 25 years. 
you know, that's their house. I mean, it's like, it's just like any other neighborhood. I mean, yes, it's a little bit less of a a lower income base, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, everybody has to live in a, in a nice, safe, clean community. Exactly. And with tenant owned homes, you're much more likely to have that result. I love it. And that's so true. I mean, really whatever level you're living at, everyone's looking for safe quality and affordability, right? But let's, let's, let's hit one more thing on the, on the mobile home park side. Inevitably someone's going to stop paying. Right. And, and let's just hit this one on the head because I know people think about, well, how, how do you evict them? Right. Is it an eviction? Are there more creative strategies that you use like a cash for keys maybe works better or something like that? You know, how, how do you address non-payment if you do have it? Have you even had any? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's two processes you have to go through. You have to go through an eviction process when they own their own homes and you then may have to go through an abandonment process. Now, again, here's more flexibility. With apartments, if someone's not paying, you have no choice as a landowner, an apartment building owner, but to file that eviction very promptly because you don't want six months of revenue being lost and damages and costs. I mean, it's a lot of money you know, that people sometimes don't realize. With a park, it's a little bit different because they're in a more permanent situation. So what we try to do is work with them the best we can. Maybe if they fall behind a month, I never did this with apartments, but if they fall behind a month, maybe you give them a little bit of leniency, but there's not a lot of of letting up you can do as far as just having them not pay you. I mean, you have to hold them to the rules of the community, but there's a little bit of flexibility with that. So we try to work with them best we can, but unfortunately, always you get to the point where one in 100 or one in 200 people, you'll have to evict them. And what that process is, is you have to give them a notice that they have to move their home from your property. Now, again, I don't like doing this and it's not fun. And like we talked about, moving a home is very expensive, but at times you have to give that eviction notice and they have a certain amount of time to move their home. And if not, if you go through the process and they're evicted, they technically have to move that home. They have to get that moved off your property. And many times they can't. So the next step, they can't live at your property no more. You have an abandoned home. You have an empty home. And you have to go through the process of attaining the title to the home if they won't sell you the home in an appropriate time frame. And so that process takes a very, very long time, Chad. I mean, you don't want to, (laughs) you'll be out out of rent collection for a year or more right now, believe me. I mean, it's taking a long time with COVID and everything. So that's why we really don't like to do that. I haven't had to actually go through this process from start to finish yet. Mm -hmm. Fortunate. Uh, And so it's, yeah, very fortunate, but you know what? It's a little, I find that it's a little more rare in parks for people to really get to that point where you have no other option. Well, that's really good. I mean, you you threw out a number like one in 200, that's like what, half a percent, you know? So that's a lot better than, you know, than any, any multifamily community. So that's, that's fantastic. Oh, it's tough to get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, stepping over to one other thing. So you mentioned Jack of all trades and master of most, right? Instead of none. One thing you were very good at, and I'll even personally attest to this because I bought all of your properties, right? (laughs) You you are good at finding deals and finding good deals. And to the point where you mentioned mom and pop owners, I'm pretty sure you went to mom and pop owners for all of the multifamilies that you had. You bought them, you you financed them with short-term financing, you improved them to a degree, and you left a whole lot of meat on the bone for someone like me to come buy it and hold on to it for the next five years, right? So, you know, what how do you go about finding deals? Because I think that's something that you must be very unique and astute at because you found better deals than I ever have. So 
Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, it's all about looking at the, uh, the, the most amount of deals you can per week. If you're looking at one deal every couple of weeks or every month, the odds of you finding the deal very quickly or finding multiple are very, very slim. So the key is- Powers and the numbers. <laughs> yeah, correct. So the key is not to be that great at anything, but to be someone that can get in front of people as best you can. One of my first jobs was a, a window and door. It was quasi sales setting appointments. And I don't believe that I was that great at it. I mean, I, I, I was pretty good at it. I can talk to people. But the number one thing that I did and that one of my buddies that, that, you know, that worked there at the same time as me did, we had good numbers because we knocked on the most doors every single thing we had. Now, the real simple job, right? That was a long time ago, but things don't change that much. You know, the, the name of the game is getting in front of as many people as possible. If you have a v, you know, virtual assistance, calling people, trying to set up appointment calls, trying to you know, knock on doors, whatever it is, those things lead you to get in front of as many people as possible and eventually you find the right person. So there's many different methods out there, but those, those are a few that I particularly use. And I'll give you a quick story how I found my last mobile home park portfolio. The guy was really hard to find and I was going through a list. I had my own list. I had a list somebody else had given me. I had all kinds of numbers. Wouldn't you know, this guy owned 170 lots and his phone number's not on there. So what I did was Tennessee is a non-disclosure state for LLCs. I couldn't find his name online either. Well, turns out I had to request a annual report, which is what you have to file every year for an LLC in Tennessee. I had to request one of these from the state. I couldn't do it online either. So I had to send a check and a letter for $20 and a letter in the mail to Nashville to request this guy's annual report. I get it back a week later, and finally, there's his name. I call him, and I kid you not, I say, do you want to sell? He says, yes, I want to sell. That easy. <laughs> I mean, it was it was incredible. I, I believe that I believe. And now I'm, I'm missing out, you know, the part where I called 200 people before that and got no from every right. single one of them. But the point is, is that I believe that his name and number wasn't very accessible. And maybe that completely inefficient thing I had to do led me to to perhaps get that deal. I don't know. I, I got a little bit lucky there, but the bottom line is you got to do what you got to do. I mean, you got to just go out of your way to get in front of as many people as possible. You know, I love that, man. And the more arduous it is, like it frustrates you when like, let's say you're looking at something, you're having to digitize PDF financials that were printed with an IBM printer. They're so bad, right? Yeah. If, if you're going through the trouble of actually taking that extra step, there's 10 other people that aren't doing that. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's how, that's how you find those deals. That's exactly <laughs> it, man. I love it. I yep. love it. Well, Peter, this has been a fantastic episode. Thanks for bestowing all the knowledge you have for us with mobile home parks. I'd love to hit three quick lightning round questions and then we'll let you get back to your busy life. How's that sound? All right. That sounds good. All right. So we at Quattro kind of provide ourselves with knowing what our superpower is. So I'd, I'd love to know what your superpower is as, as it relates to your business or profession. Well, we've kind of touched on that a little bit. I, it's it's just the ability for me to juggle so many things. I've got, you know, when I take a look at what my week entails, it's packed full every every single week. Yeah. I've got work. I've got two different things I've got to do with, with that full-time job and everything else. And so there's just a lot of things I have to do, personal, keeping myself healthy. I think it's 
it's pretty tough to to fit all that in. I real it really is, and and so I think that's that's something I have the ability to do. You're a master of the 168. There's 168 yeah. hours in a week, right? <laughs> I, I you know what? I never thought of the 168 hours till now, but I guess you're right. That's it. Everyone <laughs> has the same 168. How you use them yeah. is how you thrive. You know, so that's good. Yeah. Well, everyone talks about their successes, but I like failures. T- tell me what your biggest failure was, and what did it teach you? I gotta say that you know. I'm very relatively young. So I I haven't had a catastrophic failure. We all have failures. I mean, I've had little failures. At this point, if I had to pick out something where I'm looking back and saying I should have done something different, I should have bought more properties. I should have probably not sold properties. I mean, it's hard to find deals and it's the things that you can hang on to for a long time are very, very rare. And a lot of times in this community, we get caught up on the value add and the really high returns and all that. I mean, sometimes you just want to buy a quality asset, sit on it for 25 years and be happy at the, at, you know, during the process. We, we often try to think we have to make all kinds of money in the first two years. We don't. So I wish I would have looked at the criteria of the returns and looked at these deals a little bit differently instead of just passing on all kinds of stuff. Because it would have been a lot different if I would have just bought some of these things that were pretty good deals back then. That makes sense. And I, you know, I, I struggle with that as well, being in acquisitions, you know, it's like, you're like, man, can I really pay that today? But then you look back two years ago, man, I wish I would have bought three more buildings at that price, you know? So <laughs> yeah, you can't go crazy with it, but you know, quality stuff is quality stuff. Doesn't have that's to be right. Better. That's right. Good deal. Well, you know, one of the the four pillars of Quattro is philanthropy, right? So we always like to give our, our interviewees a chance to promote whatever cause they're behind. So what philanthropic endeavors are you involved in? Well, you know, at this point, I am really, and I've thought this for a long time now, for the past couple of years, I'm really waiting for a big play and what I really want to do eventually. I was a baseball player. I played in college uh, for, for a couple of years. What I really, really want to do is I want to have a league, particularly probably baseball, a league where I can build some baseball fields. I can have an all-inclusive thing where all the equipment is good stuff. They get it for free. There's no dues for less fortunate kids because that's something I'm really passionate about. I, I really want, you know, sometimes adults, I don't have a lot, a lot of sympathy for at times, like depending on who it is. Some, <laughs> some adults can't get out of their own way, Yeah, but every kid deserves a chance. And so that's something... In the next five, 10 years, I hope to start something like that. And and uh, it's going to take a lot of money, a lot of time, but that, that'll really make me happy. I love that, man. That That's food for the soul right now, or right there. And, you know, kids have to play the hand they're dealt. They, they don't get to make choices. Adults have, cho- have made choices, and that's why they are where they are. So I, I totally respect that and love it. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you for being on the show this today. This has been absolutely fantastic. I know you've probably got 10 things lined up behind me here, so I'm going to go ahead and let, cut you <laughs> loose here just shy of 30 minutes. But thanks a lot for being uh, with us, and we hope to have you again on the show soon. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. I, we, we, I hope everybody gets a lot out of this, and, and uh, we're, we're both people. Some, somebody can learn from, hopefully, a thing or two. Yep. And here we are on episode two of recording. So I, I did forget to mention, how can people get in touch with you? You know what? Uh, you can email me. You can call me. I am very comfortable giving out my phone number if you want. It's 865-850-0679. My email 
is uh, P is in Peter, P is in Peter, R-A-T-T-I-3 at gmail.com, pratty 3 at gmail.com. Happy to talk to anybody and I'm not going to charge you for, for your time or anything like that, but it makes me, uh, it makes me sharper to kind of talk through it and teach a little bit. So I love to do it. Yeah. He won't charge you till the second date at least, you know, so. Uh, that, yeah. Well, you're getting at something there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Peter, thanks for being here. We'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Chad. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.